It's uh, there's a lot of continuity with um, even with what um, Pastor E just said in what we're doing, and even with what uh, Pastor B was dealing with last week. You know, the whole idea that, in a sense, all these chapters, you know, 12 and 13, are dealing in um, great extent with the, high, the whole idea of judgment and the judgment day and what it's been like and about being prepared. And so today, in a sense, is a continuation of that. And so I kind of wanted to, to before I kind of jump in, I want to take the text piece by piece. So um, what I'll do, I'll just do an introduction and then pray. And then we'll kind of look at that section of how, um, I guess the best way to put it, is the Middle Eastern mind works in, you know, I say this comically, but at the same sort of time, very true. A, a bit like how a woman's brain works when you talk about a subject. In a sense, there's many different aspects of it. And so often we think that... <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 It's the... It's the um, if I remember the... Um, and I do very well remember the, uh, the marriage videos when we used to do it in it past three. The spaghetti. The, um, the spaghetti brain. And in that sense, I would say our traditional modern woman has inherited the ancient world's mind. You know, in a sense, God has preserved wisdom, if I can redeem myself in any way, by that whole idea of many subjects... Um, from different angles, all kind of covered. And so often we look at a text and we think that he's moved on. But really, he's looking at the same theme from a very different perspective. And so that's why when we look at this, it's all about the judgment day. It's all about the end of, you know, and, and the judgment day, not just in the sense of the judgment day, but in the sense, the day of your death, the day of your tragedy, a, a day that tragedy, the exile, for example, all of these come under the banner of the day of judgment. When God, in a sense, brings your, brings your kind of recent works or brings your whole life under scrutiny or brings the whole age under scrutiny. So in that sense, when we think of the judgment day, the Middle Eastern mindset is that there are many aspects of the judgment day. You know, when those first, you know, think about Daniel 1, when those exiles were walking um, or whatever, however they were transported to Babylon, that was a day of judgment for them. They hadn't died. But it was an awareness that this was the sum total of the decisions that they've made as a nation and as individuals. And so that's, the, that's what we got to bear in mind as we look at this. And so obviously Pastor B dealt with some of those aspects about not, you know, being prepared, not being anxious, thinking about the whole idea of God's wrath still coming, the whole idea that this is the time of grace. And so one of the texts that have been on the back of my mind, even as I'm thinking about this, is, is Daniel 2. Daniel 2, and about the, 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 the great statue, and that leading to kind of like this ultimate age of Christ coming and all the rest of it. So much of what I will teach today will kind of have that in the background of what, how do we make that into, how, what, how do we see that? How do we, how do we create that into a, an eschatology, so to speak? How are we to think of the end time? So we'll deal with that more as we kind of get there. But let me pray, and then we can kind of jump in at um, the first section. 
So, Father, we're thankful. Again, we've gathered us. Um, no doubt we've gained, Lord, an hour, and hopefully we're the better for it. Um, but, Lord, we're thankful, Father, that we are gathered. We're in your church, Lord. That is the blessing, Lord God, you know. Um, not the fact that it's more likely payday, more, you know, and uh, the fact that, Lord God, we've, we've had an extra lie in, Lord, but the fact that, Lord, we get together with your church, the privilege of that. And so, and under your word as well, Lord, it's not just the fact that we come together, it's not a social club in that regard, but it's coming to gather around your word. It's coming to remember who we are. It's establishing that identity, dear Lord God. And for there's so many reasons why we do this, why it's important. Because we reinforce that identity, Lord. It's not just a looking back at some point where we, we responded to the gospel and got baptized. But Lord, reminding ourselves, Lord, as we eat the supper, as we gather together, as we talk, Lord, over coffees and teas about what we've been going and sharing our testimonies and giving our hopes for the future. All of this, dear Lord God, is, is again the blessing of being a church. So Lord, as we come under your word today, we're thankful, Lord God, for what you're teaching us and will teach us and have indeed taught us, dear Lord God, even now. So Lord, help me even as I, I try to articulate these things, Lord, um, bring us, dear Lord God, into a concise place where we can just agree the Lord, that you are Lord, and what your word says is true, Lord. So let your spirit bear witness with us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let me, so I, for me, I'm, I'm kind of appreciating kind of going to section by section, because at least we can, in a sense, trace the argument. And I think, you know, me and my teacher head and, and mindset, I like the idea of being able to understand how things are broken down, how things work together. And again, thinking about that whole idea that it's the same subject, different perspectives, and hopefully it will, it will come together even as we go through it right now. So let me start in verse 1 to 5. Um, Repent or perish, as my ESV um, tells me. So I'll be reading from the ESV. Please follow in whatever version, or indeed you can follow through here. And it says here this. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So that's our first section. You know, so the Jews, again, bring up Jesus an account of a deliberate act of brutality and degradation, you know, like the, the great dishonor of being killed whilst bringing your sacrifice. In the sense, this whole idea that um, you could probably think what's going on in their mind is that these guys, even in their, in their service, God was rejecting them. Even as they came to worship, God was rejecting them. And so they brought this up saying, well, to some extent, I believe, Jesus, you, you agree with us. You know, these guys must have done something wrong. And no doubt, maybe poking at him being a Galilean as well. You know, but it's interesting that Jesus himself brings his own example 
in, in, in order to kind of contrast. And he says, you know, the, and he brings up an incident that was an accident as well but by the, uh, Siloam, by bringing up the, tem, uh, the Tower of Siloam. And, you know, so Jesus points out that regardless of whether something happens by an act of deliberate brutality or whether something that happens by an accident, because, again, they just happen to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. Whereas, obviously, it's, it would appear that Pilate targeted these guys in order to make a statement about Roman power. Jesus says it's the same thing. That was, the, in a sense, their day of judgment. That was the day that their life came to an end. That was going to be the sum total of their lives. So whether people die of a deliberate accident or whether they die within the context of, a, of, of you can say, even murder, that doesn't say anything about their righteous state. It says nothing at all. I mean, Stephen was able to give an account of the history of Israel that caused a mob. I mean, he preached a sermon. And these people violently took his life away from him. What are we to assume from Stephen? You know, no appeal here to the Roman, you know, there was no, and it's interesting, again, no appeal to the Roman authority to kill him. They just got rid of him. They were so angry, it says that they put their their hands in their ears, they didn't want to hear anything more, and they killed him. You know, one of the people I think about as well, who I think about this, Keith Green, you know, Dies by an accident. Again, a similar contrast, isn't it? One deliberately, a, del- a deliberate act of murder, I would say, with Stephen. And then Keith Green dying in a plane crash. Again, a man at the, you know, a young man. Um, if you've ever witnessed his music ministry, again, you know, it's very hard to put on a Keith Green um, CD. And, you, you know, it's not the kind of thing that you listen to, like, as a lackluster Christian. He, he always comes with that appeal to live the life. Even as he's singing the song, it's almost like always prodding you. What are you doing for Christ right now? Even while you're listening to this song, why are you not doing something? You know, that, was his, that was his intensity. And you think, did God intend to end that ministry right now? I mean, you know, what's going on? What is going on indeed? And so in that sense... We don't hold it, you know, that somehow that this Keith Green had somehow dishonored God. And so he allowed that engine to malfunction. You know, Jesus warns here, as he does in John 9, 3. So if you remember the man born blind, the disciples raised the same, you know, theodicy question. You know, he must have done something wrong or his parents, why he was born this way. And Jesus says, no. Actually, he, he, he reverses their idea and he says, actually, this man was, was born this way for the glory of God, for the glory of the kingdom of God. Because, again, that whole chapter is dedicated to his miracle of receiving his sight. And then how God, in a sense, brings him into the kingdom, how Jesus brings him into the kingdom in the end. So, again, this whole idea of, again, this superstitious reading into how people's lives go. And not just obviously if their lives end, but just if they're going through a bad time. You know, the whole idea of, is it sin in your life? And this is not even to knock that idea that, again, we might be suffering genuinely, practically, for things that we've done wrong. It's not even to say that we should dismiss that, but it's the whole idea of that we can't also, at the same time, be superstitious about the whole idea of, why is my life falling apart at this particular moment in time? 
Is it because I've dis- God finds something disapproval, disapproving in my life? So, again, all of this comes to some extent through the filter of, as from, a, from a Jewish and even to some extent a, a Christian perspective of that Deuteronomy 28. You know, and so in that sense, it wasn't like these things didn't come from a theological or, or a biblical um, perspective. Deuteronomy 28, if you, if you do the right things and you act um, loyally to the covenant, you will experience blessings, you know, multiply your children, multiply your sheep. So all of this came from that whole idea of your life being blessed. One of the things that I learned and, you know, I, I thought was really helpful about Deuteronomy 28 and how, in a sense, that text got distorted, and is still distorted to this very day through various um, uh, theological perspectives about what it means to prosper, is that that was delivered, Deuteronomy 28 was delivered to the nation as a whole. And what you find by the time of Jesus is it was individualized. If I prospered, if I was wealthy, that means God has favored me. When the whole idea is that it actually applied to Israel corporately. So, when, so the reality was it wasn't a case of, so even when they're, like we find in the time of the fall of northern Israel and then eventually the fall of Judea where there was this desperate dis, you know, um, portionality where people were rich and other people were very, very poor. The reality was and even there were people that were righteous like Jeremiah. They all went into exile regardless. The reality was is that the general, the general spiritual condition of the nation was poor. And not for the want of a few righteous people, and not for the fact that there weren't rich people in the land. The reality was is that we are either all blessed or none of us are blessed. And that's what Deuteronomy 28 says. And so that's why it was all interconnected, this whole idea that the nation was not supposed to be separated from one another and from their God. We were all, they were all supposed to hold each other to account. It wasn't a case of, well, you know, um, my house will stay intact and all the rest of the people go into exile. Everybody went into exile. And the problem with the religious elite of the time is that they believed that they were personally blessed and, and experiencing the blessings of, of Deuteronomy 28, regardless of what the state of the rest of the nation was. And there is the problem of maybe taking something that applies corporately and trying to individualize it and becoming, as it were, super spiritual about it. You know, so again, all the righteous suffered with the unrighteous. And there, it, in, you know, and, and that in a sense became a problem. And also we find Job as well deals with this subject quite well. Job himself is a perfect example of this idea of how the retribution principle. So the retribution principle is again that same thing. You know, if I do the good deeds, I will experience good life and all the rest of it. And if I do bad deeds, then, you know, badness will follow me and I, you know, I won't be able to defeat my enemies and all that kind of stuff. And that's what Job, as a book, is challenging in that ancient mindset. And so, obviously, as we, if we recall the themes of, you know, the tenor of the book of Job, what it, what it speaks to, Job's friends are convinced that he must have done something wrong. We as the readers read it knowing that, you know, Job is not perfect, but he's righteous before God. 
And so the confusion of the friends is really actually dealing with our own confusion as a society of why is it that someone's life can be falling apart and we know that God loves them. How do we deal with that? Is God unjust to do so? You know, one of the things that Job is... is, um, One of the things that Job has helped me as I studied over the lives and reading other readers who've, you know, writers who've written about the book of Job as they've studied is that, you know what? It teaches me that righteousness needs to be its own reward. You know, the whole idea of, you know, I do this so that I can have a better life, you know, and there's many people out there, secular, you know, secular people who live probably better lives than we do who do it on the same sort of thing. They have that same superstition. I, I do this so that I don't have problems in my life. I don't run red lights. I don't go over the speed limit. Not because I love God. Because I just want an easy life. I don't want any tickets. I don't want police following me. I don't want anybody chasing me. And in that sense, what the book of Job teaches us is that there's a mercenary sense. God has to protect himself from mercenary personalities who believe that if I just do the right thing and all the rest of it, God will bless me. The mercenary being the person, like the soldier, who fights not for the love of his country, but for the paycheck that he can get if he fights for the one who has the most money. And so at the end of the day, God protects himself from those people who say, I, I want to become a Christian because I just want to start prospering. In light of their judgment, we need to consider how even the wicked are not to be at ease in their good life. And again, this is a, something that I thought was, was really helpful. Um, Amos 6, I want to read it at length because it kind of gives us that sense of maybe, again, trying to bring balance to what we just read in those first five verses. And this is what it says. Um, sorry, 1 to verse 8 of Amos 6. And it says this, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations, to whom the house of the elite Israel comes. You know, again, notable, that whole idea of the notable men of the first of the nations, the elite, the people at the top of the society. Pass over to Kelner and see, and from there go to Hamath, the great, and go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? Oh, you who put far away the day of disaster, and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie in beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from their flocks and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and, like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob, and I hate his strongholds. 
and I will deliver up the city and all that it that is in it. This is Amos's view of of the northern tribes before they came under the rule of the Assyrians, and and all the people that thought life was great. He describes here and he says, you're going to be the first to go. You'll be the first ones to be moved, which again would have been true. They want to remove all those people that are in those high positions again. And then Amos is holding them to account because they didn't take the general state of the nation seriously. As long as they were all right, they didn't really care. And so that was the whole idea of, it's actually about where we stand. It's not the whole idea of whether I have enough and I'm, I'm, I'm living in luxury makes no difference with God. It's not an indication of our spirituality. It's not an indication of God favoring us more above anyone else in real terms. It's funny, isn't it? The, the, the teacher in Ecclesiastes has that same dilemma, isn't it? That the fact that ultimately all die, whether they're righteous or not. And again, it's the whole idea is that, in a sense, death is a great equalizer. And he ends, but the narrator at the end says this, isn't it? Which is great for us to kind of gain perspective. Amidst all that negativity, how are we then to judge ourselves? How then are we to say, have I lived a worthy life? Regardless of whether we've had um, success and wealth and health and all the rest of it. Well, he says this in 12, 13 to 14. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. In other words, it's, the, it's what's going on in our lives, in our hearts before God and our relationship with him. And he reminds us that that's the grand picture of it all. Not about whether the bank check looks healthy, whether you've had a good, healthy life. It's that spiritual health check. How are you with God? Is that good? And that ought to be the test of our own spirituality. Let's move on to the next section of the parable of the fig tree, please. So the parable of the barren fig tree, verse 6 to to 9. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down, why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then... If it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So, again, this is a stern warning, I think, to all unbelievers. Not to assume that God's judgment does not loom large over your head. You know, that fig tree, again, is a picture of Israel as well. And to some extent, this connects with that last section that we will deal with in this particular chapter of Israel itself rejecting Jesus. And it's this whole idea of, in a sense, the garden of being a picture of Jesus. 
the fig tree being the state of Israel and being unfruitful. God himself has come down and found it is unfruitful, much like Isaiah said he would. And he comes and he finds it unfruitful. And, and to some extent, he, God know, Jesus knows the wrath of God is abiding over it. To some extent that AD 70 and the Romans coming and taking away, he sees that looming large over them as well. That would be a day of judgment for them. And he sees that and he knows that time is short. And it tells us of that overarching picture of what we see here. He's changed the perspective, but it's the same, it's the same idea. Is that, are you now aware of your day of judgment? Are you aware that Jesus is petitioning God for you? Especially if you're not a believer. Are you aware that Jesus is saying, give him more time. Give her more time. Let me put more stuff in her life hopefully will bring us and more times that means that sometimes God has to disrupt our lives in order for us to kind of come into that place that attention that he plays that whole idea that we don't hear God unless we're in our we're in pain to some extent and feel our need for God and so that's again another perspective isn't it not about Oh, these guys were terrible guys now Jesus is put in the spotlight what about you are you not aware that Judgment is looming over you. What are you doing to prepare yourself? Let's move on. Let's move to 10, to verse 10. Now we have an account of a woman in the, in the synagogue. So now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid hands, and laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. And she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. I like that picture of now. He's not even talking to Jesus. He's talking to the people to criticize him. You've got to get that picture in your head. You know, he sees what he's, there are six days, you know. <laughs> it's, it's, you've got to capture the scene, isn't it? Come on those, you know, which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were being done by him. You know... It's amazing how religious people can make an excuse to not do some good for some religious reasons, isn't it? You know, um, I can't really do it because, um, you know, it's my Sabbath. Um, 
the focus here on Jesus apparently working and not, mean, uh, and not upon the woman's relief is another pressing indictment against the Pharisees, use of the law, you know, as a means of oppressing God's people. You know, that whole idea that what was really actually meant for a relief. And when you really look at, um, especially the Deuteronomy um, re-statement um, re, um, of the, the Ten Commandments, it was a day of relief for everybody. And that was the vision of it. And that was the whole, that was the, I guess you would say, the spirit of the law, wasn't it? That it was a day of relief, you know. And, and this is what these Pharisees had lost. Not as a liberation. It's amazing that, in a sense, this idea of liberation had continued. Because remember, even in, especially in Deuteronomy, where he restates it, it says, even for your animals, it's supposed to be a day of relief. Don't even make your animals work on that day. And they kind of retained that and lost this connection. Again, that whole idea of that loss of connection with God. Don't be surprised that it means that we lose our connection with humanity as well. When we lose that, that's one thing we learn about that, the Good Samaritan, isn't it? Is that when we lost that, that first aspect of the commandment, when Denzel was teaching that, we lose the other aspect of who our neighbor is and how we ought to treat them. So this is the indictment against them. We've lost, you've lost your relationship with God. Somehow you've retained it for your animals, because again, there's a, there's a sense of self-interest there, isn't there? And, but at the same time, you've lost that towards your fellow human being, you know? Again, you're, you're, I, I look after my wealth, but not much else. But look in particular at verse 16. Now you're going to say to me, well, see, Richard, now we've lost that train of thought. It's not really about judgment, is it? You know? Just when, you know, like you said, your wives, your sisters, whatever, now go off into said, How is that related to what we just said? You know? Well, actually, look, verse 16 highlights the struggle between Christ and Satan. That came up earlier in, it, in Luke's gospel. I saw Satan fall down from heaven. So now that picture that we have at the back of, of Luke's gospel is this wrestle between Christ and Satan. That's going on in the background. And this woman is picking up. And so to some extent, what we see here is God's judgment on Satan. He said, this woman was bound by Satan all these years, and I wanted to, this was her day of freedom and God's judgment on Satan. That's the continuation of that theme of judgment. And that Jesus didn't want to wait one more day for that woman who was bound by Satan to be for the sake of some religious people who felt like, well, you know, delay the day of judgment. No. When it comes to Satan... Jesus takes off the gloves and said, I'm fighting for her today. Not tomorrow. Today, she is free. And that's judgment on the works of Satan. And so often, this, isn't it, what we will do. We can end up seeing something that Satan is promoting, Satan is doing, and for religious purposes, move on. When God says, no, today is the day you need to fight and make Jesus' position known. You know, it's about knowing, in a sense, that sense, the right hills to die on, isn't it? And so often we can, we can think that the, the, the hill to die on is not really in God's agenda. But dying on the right hill is important as a Christian. I just, I'll make my stand here. So the kingdom of Satan is under... Obviously, is, is, is threatened 
And Jesus now reinstates it and says, now the kingdom of God will advance on this woman's life. And so he heals her. So that's the continuation. Let's move on, though. 18, the mustard seed. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sold in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to, who, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like an, it's like laven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all lavened. So now... How does this compare to judgment? And I guess we are in that situation where there is the advancement of the kingdom of God. So remember from the last passage, and again as earlier, Satan's kingdom is under attack. And now Christ's kingdom is advancing. But the first thing we need to note here is that it's advancing slowly. That's the thing that Jesus wants them to know. You know, there's a number of things that have kind of been going, I guess, from a pastoral perspective of how do we deal with other ideas of what's going on. And one of the things that was going on in my mind is the post-millennialist position of what's the church supposed to look like in times like this? You know, the post-millennial view is this whole idea that um, the church needs to be very active in creating the kingdom of God. You know, that we need to have that influence in politics and all the rest of it. In that sense, we've got to, there's a, there's a sense that the Christian has a real victory to win because Christ's reign is really, is really actually now. So how do we respond to that? And so I'm, I'm, I've, I've become more sympathetic to that idea over the years, but to some extent know that it doesn't quite fit with all aspects of what it is. And I believe that the church, as we see it, has advanced. One of the things I would say is that, especially as we look at the Christian West as a whole, we see how much Christianity has created great opportunities. Even in, we, I would say, in the post-colonial world of India and, and in places in Africa where the things of schools and hospitals and the likes, we've seen the growth of how Christianity has transformed these places where once education was only for the rich. Hospitals were only for the rich. And to some extent, we're seeing the effect of as people who have become believers and have moved into the world, that we're seeing this vision of what Jesus is saying affect the world. And that to some extent, the, even the very ethics that most people in the West would criticize Christianity for comes from Christians. They take Christian ethics and criticize Christians with that Christian ethic. And that's a tragedy. And that, I think, is also a witness of what Jesus says in these verses, is that actually it's so lavened into what we believe as a culture that we can't even see it as Christian anymore. It's been so infused generation after generation after generation. You know, if anyone familiar with the work of Nietzsche, this made him crazy. He said, a people who are post-Christian in their, in, you know, the, the general idea of this philosopher, this German philosopher, was that if we are truly post-Christian, if we've accepted Darwinianism, we need to redefine our ethics. We need to chuck away those Christian ethics and start actually developing new ones. 
And people won't engage with Nietzsche on that, top, on, on that topic to this very day. You really need to actually, and the, the strangest thing, if you look at history, the Nazis actually tried to do that. They tried to live by different ethics where my might makes things right. Not about whether it's the right thing to do in a, with a God who is watching. No, I'm doing it. That's why it's right. So we live in a world where people don't quite realize that to some extent the gospel is advancing. And I think this is probably a more better way to see it. You know, and I think, again, as I, you know, so, so another way that, I, that seems more plausible as opposed to this post-millennial Christians being way more active within the, within the, 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 the structure, within the nation, um, is that it's more in line with the gospel message not dying out as the Holy Spirit keeps illuminating throughout the world. In other words, through individual believers. The gospel is therefore seen to transform societies wherever it is believed and even appears to have a positive effect on a society even when it, is no, when it no longer believes. And this is what is so important in the sense that as, much, as people have moved away, the Christian ethics of their grandparents, their great-grandparents, still affects them. The, the, what resides in the laws, which we start to see them starting to reverse, is still there. Those Christian ethics, you know, even to this very day. Um, I remember back in, good Lord, it was the 90s, when they started to reverse the Sunday law, you know, I remember when I was working in Safeways in Cam- Camberwell back in the day, and I remember when, they, you know, when my manager came up to me and said, would you be prepared to work on Sundays now? You know, those of us who were there will remember it, you know, and people were, be- you know, because they couldn't make you do it because the law was on your side. I have a Sabbath. I have, this was a day, you know, and obviously now they're slowly rewriting those laws. And, and even to this day, stores are only allowed to open for, what, five hours? A certain source of certain size. You know, that's the Sunday law. That's the preservation of Christianity within, within the English culture. And that's just one amongst many, which they're slowly trying to reverse. They're slowly trying to take away. Because again, as that Christian witness diminishes. And so we see that in that sense, the Christianity has grown and has changed societies as people who have obviously no doubt become MPs and ministers and, and have been able to create strong lobby groups to create Christian ways in which to live. And this is what Christians were supposed to do, right? To influence their cultures and to look for that. You know, today I think we don't give much thought as to what our life would look like without the introduction of Christ and the gospel into human history. But I think we're starting to realize it, isn't it? As we see chaos starting to slip in. We're starting to realize what we're losing and that the world of madness that kind of looms at the end with more authoritarian, you know, authoritarian um, laws coming in to kind of cement that chaos. And so we don't really think about this. Without Christ, would we really be able you know, to, be, to, to evolve beyond what I would have believed would have been in place, a Greco-Roman ethics? You know... I've developed this illustration that it's not going to be helpful for those who don't know Star Trek. Forgive me. <laughs> Forgive me if you don't. But, but I, I, I use it because it's helpful. And it's, it's interesting. One of the, the themes with all the Star Trek series right from the very beginning is this picture of what they call the mirror world. And so 
Every now and then, the, 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 the enterprise or whatever it is, they, they cross over into the mirror world. And so it's this whole idea, you know, we're all familiar now, we watch the superhero movies, this multiverse thing, you know, alternative realities of what it is. And it's interesting that in this mirror world, Starfleet looks different. Starfleet is there, they've got spaceships, but they're under a Greco-Roman idea. They're like, they, 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 they don't go out and explore, they go and conquer nations. And one of the things is that the feudal system is still intact, even within the context of the, of the, 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 the command structure, where if the second in command wants to challenge the captain for what they made, if they have making a bad decision, they can go into mortal combat with each other and then become the captain, so to speak, just by virtue of, like, I disagree with you, I take you out, I want to take you out to, um, you know, I want to fight with you and all the rest of it. And so it's this kind of picture of, what the world would have looked like had Christ not intervened. And so the Greco-Roman world still rules, and it's like might makes right, ultimately. And they're, yeah, they're like the clues, basically. So it's a, it's a funny thing. And I think that's what we don't actually think about. What ethics would be in place if this was not there? And I think we're getting a glimpse of that mirror world now, aren't we? of might makes right as we start to see again that reassurgence around the world of people reasserting their power and saying, I'm doing it. Do you know what I mean? So what? So, again, something for us to think about as Christians, and again, as a side note, but again, it helps illustrate how do we understand these verses? Because again, people will come and pull the wool over your eyes about what it might mean, but you really need to think it through. What does it mean that... The laven of Christianity permeating the culture. How do we bring people to light with that? How do we tell people, you're using Christian ethics to judge me? How is that consistent? You know, there's also a caution here as well, as I said, for us not to become addicted to fast growth. Of you know, this is on an individual level, and this is also on church levels as well. And that's one of the things, I guess, as we look at the big picture, how might we look at this as a, as a kind of a more smaller application? Individual Christians are going to grow slowly. It's that whole idea of how does that, the gospel permeate all their lives? So often, again, in the midst of a crisis, we come to Christ, right? And then that area of our life where we feel that we've completely lost control becomes permeated with the gospel and we start to rely on him. But there's so many other areas where we're confident, though. You know, maybe we're good in, you know, in our career. We don't quite give our careers and our prosperity over to God because it was a relationship issue that we kind of came to Christ through. And, so what, as, as, and maybe as that gets challenged, we start to realize that God is Lord over my career. God is Lord over my health. God is, and, and so often these experiences permeate our lives slowly, not fast. You know, we're being saved in a sense. Our personality is being saved one piece at a time. You know, so we are saved in in that grant once and for all by Christ having died for us. But how that gospel now reaches those other parts of us is going to be different. And this is the same about church growth as well, isn't it? How we might look at our individual, you know, oh, well, you know, if we do this program, we can get, you know, bigger church growth and all the rest of it. And, you know, I've never been a big fan of church growth books and how, you know, the things you're supposed to do. 
you know. I mean, a lot of them are good in sense just, just, just do the gospel. But the reality is, is that it's not technique, it's Christ's work. All we're doing is getting behind what God is already doing. And we're not going to make him, you know, as we think about ourselves here, he, we're not going to be able to make Lewisham grow quicker in the gospel than Christ is prepared to do so. There is an act, it's just about, it's about the, our preparedness to receive those people who are going to come and grow slowly. Do you know what I mean? And so that's the thing. It's learning, especially, you know, and again, you know, if you want an illustration of this, I know I'm at that place now where I lose my patience with learner drivers. I, I, I've, you know, drove past one the other day, quick, I'm not doing, but we, it's, it's that whole idea of understanding, isn't it? I, that was me once, right? That was me, you know, cranking the gears. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So that's life. Let's move on. 22 to 30, the narrow door. He went on his way through towns, villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer, you I do not know where you come from. When you begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And the people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are at least some who are last will be first. And some are first who will be last. So, again, that picture of judgment, isn't it? There again. A bit more obvious than, than maybe in the previous couple of passages, but it's there. You know, so are we to expect huge amounts of people to be saved? I mean, it's a fair question, isn't it? Maybe something we ask, and again, um, those who've dabbled with universalism, isn't, you know, isn't it, you know, ultimately, isn't the whole world going to be saved? You know, might have similar questions in their mind as well, isn't it? Especially as we live in a culture, in a sense, where Christianity has permeated it. And so often, like you said, people do live good lives. And so that goes around our minds. I mean, you know, isn't... Christianity is so broad that ultimately so many people, it will bring in lots of people ultimately because so many people will fall under the spectrum, right, of Christianity. In a sense, they don't have Christ, but they kind of got all the other things. Do you know what I mean? In there. And that's what we're thinking, isn't it? Because I know I used to be there. They got all the other kind of things in Christ, you know, but they haven't got Christ. Well, uh, <laughs> So, the strive to enter through the narrow gate really is quite an eye-opener, isn't it? And to some extent, we need the Gospel of John, I think, in order to kind of understand that phrase a bit better, isn't it? I am the way. All right, I am the door. Um, I, I think Christ is, 
is being both literal and both figurative there, isn't he? You know, it's both. I am the door. You know, for all of this whole idea of I can have the full, the full package. You know, as I said, we, we, we see through this the great stumbling block, isn't it? The particular errors, I guess, is that the assumption that all sincere truth seekers and moral people are to be included within the scope of believers. You know, the second error, I believe, is that, um, that Jesus plus, you know, the Jesus plus approach to presenting the gospel, you know, the Jesus plus and Jesus and this, is also one of those errors that we need to avoid. So there's, there's the problem of, if I can illustrate this a little bit clearer, there's a problem of, I've got all the ethics and I've got all the, the, the moral kind of things in place, but I don't have Christ. But then I've also got the other error, which I've got Christ and I've got all these other things which I think are so important. And I'm trying to bring that through the door as well, saying this is the way we actually become safe. So there's the Christ plus and the Christ less issue of the narrow door, which we need to, again, be wary of. So this challenges us that the day of judgment and us being ready for the day of judgment means that we have to think very seriously about how we relate to Jesus. Are we bringing the extra baggage in and saying this is, is, is important and are we assuming that to some extent a Christless person, you know, again, it's, and, and, and it's all the wrong assessments of Jesus that come with this as well, isn't it? The whole idea he's a great teacher. Again, we can fall for that trap as well. He's just a great teacher. He's a great moral teacher. And to some extent, I look up to Jesus. So many people can say that. So many people in Hollywood can say that, right? Hand on heart. And not feel a way about it, but it's really actually following through on all those things that Jesus says, isn't it? And we end up in that space is that actually we've got to take him at his full word. And if we can't, then ultimately where do we lie? And so, again, we see within the passage, it's not, again, maybe these people come not with lack of religious things that they've done. Again, the good things that they've done. And Jesus still says, I don't really know you. I don't know you. And, the, and I guess the crushing thing is that he actually says they're wicked. There is no real grasp of a moral life outside of Christ. So for all of us being maybe jealous of our neighbours, our Christless neighbours living better lives than us, in the grand scheme of things, we have to be honest with ourselves. If we take Jesus at his word, there's nothing to admire there. And I know we say that, you know, oh, but I might, they, they live such great lives. But again, I think as we look at it, sometimes more, more often than not, look, let's, say, let's be honest, 100% of the time it's for the wrong reasons. I just, don't, I just want peace in my life. And not because I love God. So how are we saved? You know, throughout the biblical narrative, believers are always saved because of their faith in God. Simple. Genesis 15, 6, isn't it? And he believed that is Abraham the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Faith in God. Faith even in the finished work of God and not just Abraham looking at, you know, Abraham was having faith in God for something that he had not even completed yet. 
And it's not just the simple fact that he promises Isaac, it's the fact that he promises him through him, through Abraham. What was he having faith in? That the saviour will come through your line. He had faith in all of that. And so Abraham had faith in Jesus just like we do. So Abraham himself enters through the narrow door because that's what happens before. Through your seed, through your, you know, through your seed, singular, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And he believed that. So this whole idea that, you know, well, how did people get saved before they believed this? So no one got saved without Jesus. They believed that God would finish the work that they could not finish. That their human strength could not complete. Everybody believed that. The prophets, as Jesus states here, that came and said, believed the finished work of Christ. So no matter how incomplete it is, it all is rooted in this statement towards Abraham. Through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But it's interesting also as well, thinking of the theme of judgment, is that Jesus also reframes the question, doesn't he? So he takes this issue of, well, how many people will be saved? And he reframes the question by not speculating what kind of numbers will be saved, by personalizing it, by asking, will you be saved? Forget about the numbers. It's not about, you know, what about you? So the grand scheme of things is sometimes we're, we're looking for the broad understanding, the kind of liberal understanding of it. And Jesus says, no, it's not about that. It's, it's, where do you stand in all of these things? So often, isn't it, we've, we're, we're in that mentality, isn't it? I just, I just need to run faster. When it comes to the, you know, I'm being chased by a beer. I just need to run, be, run faster than the person who's slow. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And that's how we think, isn't it? I can, if I'm just a bit better than him, I'm all right. Do you know what I mean? And, and it's getting you off that mentality, isn't it? And saying, actually, don't think about you competing with other people. Think about you and God. So 31 to 35, lament over Jerusalem. Come on, let's, let's read that and start to take this home. Praise God. So at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the day and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it. How often... Would I have gathered you children together as hens gather her brood under her wings? And you are not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of God. So judgment, the day of judgment is coming. And it's not possible to discern the intent of the Pharisees here, whether they want to alarm Jesus or chase him off, and, and, uh, you know, this is, or if this is a genuine call for him to be careful. So, in a sense, we can't quite understand why they tell them this. And we shouldn't, because so many, you know, one of the things we forget as well, if we read our Bibles carefully, um, especially the book of Acts, um, 
Galatians and all the rest of it, lots of Pharisees became Christians. You know, so we can take this kind of one-size-fits-all thing that all Pharisees were. Many Pharisees believed in Jesus. And so the whole idea that some who, you know, Joseph, obviously, um, Nicodemus, and many others that sat within the Jerusalem council were from that Pharisee sect. And no less Paul, obviously, as well. So we shouldn't take this kind of blanket idea that, you know, not all of them looked out for Jesus, that, you know, they didn't look out for Jesus' best interest. Maybe they knew, especially as being insiders, what was coming and genuinely are telling him to go. Or maybe, they, you know, again, we don't know whether they're the bad mind kind who are trying to chase him off. It's hard to discern. But we move on. You know, so Jesus, you know, again, shows little regard for Herod as well. Calls him a fox. You know, again, it's hard to understand. Is it because Herod being crafty, being off the Roman mindset and, and the way he ruled? Or is it because as a fox, he's insignificant? We don't know how Jesus, again, was applying this. However, it makes it clear that he will continue to do what is his work right up until his death. In other words, these things are not big in that sense. And it's interesting, again, again, because Paul takes that same mentality as well when he's going to Jerusalem and, and, and he has been prophesied to that your death lies in Jerusalem. You know, you're, you're going to be in trouble, sorry, in Jerusalem. And he says, I've still got to go. I've got to complete this work. So Jesus, as Jesus takes this, um, I'm going to go on and do the work of the Lord so does Paul. I'm not going to be swayed. You know, as Jerusalem was the center of the religious life of the nation, it's ironic that it becomes the place where many of the true prophets of God lost their lives. Again, it's, it's, it's a strange irony, isn't it? That the prophets of God, so many of them died in Jerusalem. Isaiah being one of the most notable ones. The parable of the vineyard highlights this point that a legitimate authority shows up to claim what is theirs. Again, remembering the, 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 the parable about Jesus sent, you know, God sending all these prophets, so to speak, and then eventually sends his son, and they all kill them, stone them, killing some, and ultimately it's like the people that should have recognized his authority didn't. And they should have known better in fact, in one of the parables, I guess, as we come to later on in Luke, he says, they know that the son is the son. And they kill him anyway. Because they believe that it will get them, that will conceal power for them. They believe that if we can get rid of God, I mean, it's the, it's the strangest thing that goes through your mind, is that if I can kill God's, the, 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 the literally living power of God on earth, that somehow then we will inherit. It's the, it's the craziest notion in the world that somehow God will leave us alone and that will be the end of the matter and, and then he will be forced to use us to rule. <laughs> the tragedy of the, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Israel as a whole is that for all their cries for help and deliverance, it had a history of rejecting the help that was sent. We see this in the life of Joseph. One of the things we did in Bible study recently, looking at Joseph as the paradigm for Jesus, isn't it? It's right from the very beginning. I read a fantastic book about how Joseph, in a sense, sets up the gospel. The one who God has set right from the very beginning, in a sense, 
you know, if you want to just stick within the first book of the Bible, the gospel's there. They're the one who God has desired to send as the authority to help these people, deliver his people. And again, this is not salvific, obviously. It's a, it's a very practical help to save lives, to feed them. But the reality is a symbol of Christ, isn't it? That the brothers hate him and desire to kill him and throw him out of the place. And he has to come as an outsider to deliver them. And they come and they bow down to him when they don't know. And again, it's that picture of judgment, isn't it? Is that when you see Christ come, glorified, all the rest of it, it's too late. You know, Moses, David, Elijah, and Elisha, and so on, all these people likewise repeat this pattern of God sending someone who the people reject in various ways. So when you have a history of rejecting the help God has offered you, you end up forsaken. You know, by your own choices. It's not for lack of help that you're forsaken. It's for the fact that you just don't want that type of help. So often we meet people who are destitute in that same situation. Not for lack of help, but for lack of the rejection of the help that's available. I'm homeless because I don't want to live by the rules in which I would have to go to that hostel to live by. I refuse. That's true for some people. So help, in that sense, is not for the fact that no one cares. You're forsaken because you have forsaken the only help that I can give you. In Jesus' final statement, it's hard to discern when this great reveal would happen. There's a whole idea of when you say blessed comes in. So, I, I mean, I'm one of those people that believe that I believe very much in a great revival of Israel. Some people don't. You know, I believe a revival of ethnic Israel will happen. I think this is, again, one of the things I structure on Romans 9 and 10 and, you know, and, and 11 and Acts 28 with this whole idea of what will be the fate of Israel as a whole. Um, in regards to the gospel, I'm, I, I'm, I kind of subscribe to this whole idea of a great revival of Israel, of ethnic Israel in the end. I just find it, I'm, you know, it's one of the few places I'm a romantic in that sense, in, that, in the sense that, that in God, beginning with Abraham kind of ends with him in a real sense. And, you know, not that I don't believe that the church is Israel, I do believe that, but I also believe that there's something about the people in the land and being that fig tree, you know, being that witness. In a sense, the, pres- the preservation of Israel is a reminder to us of God's faithfulness. And I, I think there's something true about that. Watch the fig tree. And against God's faithfulness to keep a people, regardless of whether they believe him. And so I believe that's quite true. And so maybe that's what Jesus is holding out. Blessed when you, when you say who comes in the name of the Lord, that in a sense he's holding out for that, that revival of Israel coming. And obviously not to put aside the fact that the gospel has spread throughout the world because of Israel, or because of Jews themselves. Jews spread the gospel. And so maybe that's that picture of the last being first, isn't it? And the first being last. So that's my personal stance on all of that. So let's come to an application. Let's land this. You know. So 
So Jesus has come, his kingdom is growing, and his kingdom will be established. That's a given. So all of it is within, as the kingdom comes, judgment is also coming as well. And that's the two, that's the two prongs. It's at the end of the day, it's not that Jesus is going to come and live alongside a secular people. The, 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 the reality is, is that the coming of the kingdom means judgment is coming. And that's what these last two chapters have been about. And our readiness and our preparedness for this is ultimately what we are being told for from very many different perspectives. Will Israel be ready? Will you be ready? The permeation of the gospel, it's slowly happening. But again, don't be counting on that slowness as an advantage because one day it will suddenly appear and be real in a way that we, if we're not having faith, it will shock us. So one, if we look at the first section, you know, we should not buy into the shallow view of spirituality. You know, are we counting on our wealth and our health and the fact that we're safe, you know, as being a gospel indication that I'm all right? as those often do not tell the full story of what is really going on in the person's relationship with God. Are we counting on that? Job, again, is a great example of God turning the retribution principle on its head and thus protects his divine blessings from the mercenary. Are we relying on that? You know, again, one of those things that, themes that have been through my life as well is how we teach you as a church to suffer well. I pray for your deliverance. I pray for great answers to come. But I also pray that you see the opportunity for God to use your difficult times to draw close to him. That you, again, like Peter, rejoice in the fact that I've, I suffered for Christ when they beat me. Not because he loves beating, but because he could see the joy. You know, when, when you've denied Christ like Peter did, to see the fact that you could stand your ground and, and that feeling that sense of victory... I want you to feel that sense of victory in your difficult situations as well. It's not for love of suffering. It's for that ability to draw. I said there's an opportunity for you to draw close to Christ. If you're an unbeliever, again, for the same reason that you might receive him as well. Don't forget that. The second section, number two, the, part, the psalmist says, help me to number my days. So it is said, you know, again, thinking about the, the, the fig tree, you know, you know, so it is said that tomorrow is promised to no one. The day of decision is today. Are you counting on time that's not really there? Jesus is saying, you know, is Jesus hedging around your life, focusing on your life right now, and you're just assuming that life is going to continue on and you're fruitless, fruitless in the gospel. Don't count on those days. I remember, you know, the, you know, the good evangelist can catch you on that, isn't it? Like I said, I could tell you stories of people who have counted their days and have not. My coming to faith was on a person who, let me tell you this because you know it's important. My coming to faith was, um, there was a young man, a friend of mine, a friend of my family's, grew up with him, four years older than me was a deacon in my, in my dad's church, um, left church. I guess he was about 18, 19, he left church. And I always use this story because it's important to me. And I remember when I came back to Christ. So anyway, I, mem I, I remember he picked me up once and I was, I, was, um, I was going to school 
he was driving by, he was going to work, and he, you know, and it was not far from where my school is, and he said, drove me to school, and I said to him, why don't you come to church anymore? He said, ah, oh, man, you know, I just got to live my life. You see the church in it. All of those guys are like 50. This is an honest condensing of that conversation. All those guys, they're like 50 odd. They all come to, you know, my dad included. They all come to God when they're all old. They live their life, they've had their life, and all of a sudden they've come to Christ, and then all of a sudden, you know, they find God as they're old. And I think he kind of felt a way about that. I want to go and live my life. I want to enjoy myself, and then I'll come back. So, three, four years on, I'm 20, I become a Christian, and literally within the same three months, same few months I became a Christian, he fell into a coma and died, never recame. Two weeks later, he died. And I remember sitting in that house, and that conversation came to my mind. Robert thought that he had 50 years at least. And so I came to Christ with that story in my mind of this whole idea that I've got X amount of time to come. And all those things I used to hear at all the articles just made so much sense. You're going home today, young man, and you think that you've got the rest of your life. And all those things you just kind of pass over because you're, I'm young, I'm, I'm, I've got the rest of my life ahead of me. And so I came to Christ with that in my mind and I remember that and I said, Lord, teach me to number my days. Anyway, let's move on. So number three, Jesus declares war on the kingdom of Satan. You know, this is the healing of the woman. And thus we have a, no good reason to be passive to the call. Even hiding behind the veil of religious piety is no excuse to not push forward, isn't it? You know, maybe we, 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 we choose not to do things because, for like vain religious reasons. The kingdom of God needs to pursue. Four, what else do we learn? To offer... Often the balance of the now and the not yet is overstretched, isn't it? To be not yet so being, you know, we're not so invested in secular life. You know, thinking about the, the, um, the laven and, and, and the Christ growing into this massive tree like a mustard seed. And so often we can either try to be one side, isn't it? I won't be overinvested because the kingdom is not yet, as I said, and we can end up um, saying, like, let's invest in my secular life the life outside of Christ. Or sometimes, like you said, we can be over-invested, isn't it? And kind of live this over-realized eschatology, as they say, where we feel like, well, all the promises of God are now, and we need to start claiming them. So often we can miss the forest for the trees, though, isn't it? Quite literally, it's the, grow, the gradual growth of the kingdom is happening all around us. You know, we are, as I said, we are living in the, in, with the values of Christianity having permeated our own current culture. And to some extent, this is the promise of Christ's reign. We are seeing the benefits of Christians who have been invested in this country and have made it into what it is. As Pastor E told you, the Koreans said the same things about their own culture. The investment of Christ, the fact that people had Christian principles, you know. Some of the things that, again, the future doesn't look bright. You know, one of the reasons, again, this is something I learned that's really important here. One of the reasons why Puritans... um, Businesses thrived because they had very little under, you know, they had very little regard for material possessions, so they constantly reinvested in their businesses. 
They made money, they just reinvested in it. They made money, they just reinvested it. What am I going to do? I'm going to buy a bigger car? They didn't care. Now we find we live in a time with, you know, as I said, I've used the example of people like Philip Green, where people, they make a little bit of money in their business, uh, and then they just want to run away with it. They make a little bit, they don't want to reinvest it. Just get to the shareholders, get it to the shareholders. That's a loss of that Christian. We don't have that future growth. Was that, that Christian ethic of being reinvested. Just money for the reinvest. You know, I could go on about Thames Water, but I won't. They're just getting me mad in here. But that was the growth of the ghost. So we are, we are living within the context. We are living that example around, isn't it? And we don't see that the gospel is, Christ is reigning. We have benefited through it. And hopefully we'll see other cultures profit through that. And again, let's pray for China as well, isn't it? That they will start to see that. Because again, there's a promise that that will be the next big Christian culture, isn't it? As more and more Chinese people are now becoming Christians. Five, the narrow door. You know, it's the old age stumbling block, as I said, that the idea that there are many ways to God. In the Gospel of John, Jesus describes himself as the door, right? And leads to life. One of the hardest things for us to grasp in our current age of pluralism and equality is the, is the narrow view of being the one way to salvation, isn't it? We always feel that temptation in, in a world where people seem to be so easy to tolerate. You know, I, I appreciate you as a Christian, all the rest of it, do you know what I mean? But they want us to get into that spirit of pluralism as well. And as much as I can say on a secular level, I'm with you. But when it comes to the gospel, there's only been one way, even for those people that lived 2,000 years before Christ, to be saved. So through Christ. And six, finally, you know, that final section. How, you know, brings to a dramatic conclusion, isn't it? To this section of Jesus' teaching and the coming judgment. The irony here is that Jerusalem is not forsaken for its lack of religious diligence but for its misdirection against its only hope. As it was in the last days of Israel and Judea, the false prophets dominated the narrative, isn't it? They dominated the religious narrative. Don't worry, it's fine. Even when the armies of, of the invading armies were outside literally their walls, they still believed that they were all right and nothing could have been further from the truth. And they launched even that, if that wasn't worse, they launched a campaign against the true prophets to sideline them, to cancel them, so to speak. You know, truly the unpardonable sin is, is when you call evil your only hope of salvation. You know, there's no mystery behind the unpardonable sin about it being some kind of spirit you could enter to. It's just the fact that you just call the only hope that God has given you and you call it evil. I refuse to trust it because I think it's evil. Then you are truly forsaken because there's no second option. Let's pray. Lord, um, dealing with judgment is, is, is never going to be an easy time, Lord God, but yet, um, Father, I think my hope, Lord, is, is that we will think through these things. As much as we might think that we've kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm there, I'm ready. Um, but there's many implications, Lord, again, about how we, again, preach the gospel. 
We thank God for those who were able to go out yesterday and do that, Lord God. And maybe this is, a, um, again, perfectly in line with that whole idea of that. We're trying to get ourselves ready as well. So, Lord, help us as we, as we wrestle with this, Lord, and think about what it might mean for ourselves. Maybe we are here as, as, as kind of nominal believers, and we need to start rethinking about whether I'm really safe. Is it because just things have been going right, fine in my life, but I'm not really right with God? Maybe we need to start rethinking that. You know, am I trusted in Christ? Is my faith in Christ alone? You know, have I put my faith in good works as some secondary thing? Lord, all these things, the Lord, we hopefully need to wrestle with as a church. You know, we do pray, uh, again, even as I kind of highlighted the issues with, you know, of, of, of the potential of Israel being a, a place of revival, Lord. I do put, again, and pray even for that current struggle, Lord, now. Pray for peace there and the peace of Israel, Lord Father, that they would know what it means, Lord. Again, these, um, again they, we live by their ethics, Lord, even to this very day. And we can only pray to Lord God that they will do so and continue to do so, Lord, in this current struggle. But Lord, for us a church, Lord, help us as we, we go through this, Lord, and um, to understand what it means to be a, um, in a time of judgment. The kingdom of God is coming. And it's coming, dear Lord God, to, as it were, shift out of the way all that won't bow the knee to you, to, you, to the Son, as Psalms 2 says, who kiss the son and make peace with him. And so, Lord Father, we pray that we are preparing ourselves for that and that we are ready for that ourselves. So, Lord Father, will many be saved? Well, Lord, help us to now refocus that to, well, am I saved? And make that a highlight there, Lord God, in, in how it then enables us to react to that and how we preach the gospel to others. So, Lord, give us more grace in our time as we seek your face, Lord. Be merciful to us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.